I don't know what you do to relax. Um, all of us have stressors in our life. All of us have things that come along that, that just aggravate us. And sometimes we laugh about those. Sometimes those are more serious. And we're going to talk about the more serious here in a second. But I saw this video this week um, that... Uh, I think represents how sometimes we feel uh, when uh, we think, well, what am I going to do to relax? I'm going to do these things, but it's not as relaxing as it looks like. So if you'd play that video, please. Hi, everybody. It's Paul. You know, a lot of people ask me, uh, after a long day of voiceover or writing or doing all those creative things that I do, um, how do I relax? Well, like many other Americans, uh, I come home and I, I pet my dog. You see, petting the dog is one of the most relaxing things you can possibly do. It releases a hormone called oxytocin, which reduces stress. Also, it lowers your heart rate and it lowers your blood pressure. Plus, people who pet their dogs are five times more likely to live longer than people who just have cats. Plus, the dogs like it so much, and it's a nice bonding experience. That's right. Good daddy's little boy. Daddy's little boy. Daddy's little boy. That's right. Okay, we're done. All right, very good. So maybe you watch that and um, you can relate to that, right? Um, we all have things in our life that aggravates, that brings some discomfort, and, uh, um, and I just got a text that I said this wrongly, okay, for the um, Webster's anniversary party, it is Saturday the 19th, not Sunday, right, so read the bulletin, what it says there, listen up to a thing to what I say, okay, read that, I don't want you to show up and miss the party, uh, or we could just have two parties, is that okay, Dixie, if we just have two parties, that's okay, that's double the gifts, all right, something like that, anyway, so read the bulletin, don't listen to what I just said, because I think I said it wrong, so I apologize for that, okay, all right, so we have been in this series called Nooks and Crannies, and we've been walking our way through the book of Ephesians, and looking up section by section at, at the different places when we use the word nooks and crannies it's kind of one of those expressions that talks about just every little place hidden place uh, quiet place dark place and just the the book of Ephesians makes the claim that Jesus is over all he's in all he rules over everything there's not a thing that he doesn't want to have his glory and his influence over and in and in the first half of the book of Ephesians, it, there is some grand claims that God rules over the world, that Christ rules over the world because he's, he's, he was crucified, he's been resurrected, he, he sits at the right hand of the Father now. But so much of what God wants to do first, before he sends us public, is oftentimes um, a little more internal. And so we've been walking our way through this, and, and we have talked about things, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 1, just for a little review here, just to get us on the same page again that he's filled us with a sense of worth. Uh, early chapter one, boy, all the list of descriptive things, you're adopted, you are loved, you are chosen, all the things that are labeled over you and put you and remind you there's a worth that you can have that has nothing to do with worldly stuff. It's because of the Lord loving you. And through Christ, he gives you this incredible sense of worth that is rooted in Christ and his gracious, loving work on your behalf. And so there is this deep-seated worth that you can live with. We also looked at that has this poise and confidence that God wants us to have because in Christ, no matter what happens to you, there's always this hope that's available to you. And you're a part of this beautiful inheritance in Christ. And, and 
There's this power that's available to you on the inside that can help you no matter what you're facing and what's going on. And, and, and Paul's prayer is just that our eyes would be open to that every day. Um, and so God deals with those kinds of things, the insecurities, our sense of worth that, that man, we wrestle with a lot. We moved into chapter two the last few weeks and, and we looked at how Paul emphasized the idea that through Christ he brings our dead hearts, our dead souls because of our sin and following the wrong influences and that left us deserving of God's wrath and how that brings us to life in Christ. And last week, Tyler kind of walked through the end of chapter two and just talked about the unity and the harmony that Christ can bring into our relationships because God is, or Christ is a, a peace-bringing influence. He brings Jew and Gentile together, together under Christ. And so you and I, as we live out our relationships, there's this sense of peace that we can pursue um, in the midst of that. In the midst of a hostile and difficult world, we all have issues, we all get angry, we all have differences, but yet under Christ, there's this unity that we can explore and achieve. And all of those, as I go back and review those as we go through this series, I just reminded of how important each of those that are, how I need to preach those to myself on a regular basis, the message of this book. And today we'd move into chapter three in Ephesians. And in doing so, we come to one of the deepest and hardest nooks and crannies that I think that God wants to work in our lives, in and through. He wants to fill this area of our life, but oftentimes it is one of the most difficult for us. And what I'm talking about is the pains and the hurts and the hardships and the sufferings that take place in our life. Um, to quote one of the great theologians from my youth, R.E.M., uh, everybody hurts. All right, remember the words to that beautiful song? I know it's a beautiful song. That song, when your day is long and the night, the night is yours alone, when you're sure you've had enough of this life, well, hang on. And don't let yourself go because everybody cries and everybody hurts. Sing it with me. Sometimes, here you go, here you go, do better. And sometimes everything is wrong. It goes on and on, right? But I don't know the motivation of their song, but they're describing life in so many ways. We all end up in places like that. Everybody hurts sometimes. And they're right in that. And their advice is don't let go. And that's not bad advice either. But I want to know what are we holding on to? And I think as you read through the opening part of chapter three in Ephesians, Paul is pointing us both through what he writes, but also through his example of his life that stands behind these words of what it looks like to hold on. And so I hope to encourage you today in that. You see, there are a few things that make us feel more alone or feel more disconnected or hopeless than when we go through times when we hurt. Now, it may be physical pain, Maybe emotional pain, spiritual pain, relational pain. So many things that can hurt us, can hurt our hearts, can hurt us. And when we get hurt, it tends to not just be surface. It goes deeper than that. It goes to the core of who we are. And so maybe some of you are there today. And you're wrestling with hard things. And you're wrestling with painful things. And so what are we holding on to in those moments well, in this text of verses 1 through 13, there's the last verse is the verse that I kind of want to key off of and let that be the, the verse that I hope that you'll walk away with here today. Because I think everything that Paul says and we're going to look at kind of builds to this point because this is why he writes it. This is what he wants them to do with what he has said. He says this in verse 13, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Paul's concerned for them. Other translations use the phrase, I pray that you will not lose hearts. 
And as you read that verse, I think you are seeing Paul being very honest about some things in his life. Paul is not some Pollyanna, no pun intended, that just lives in some castle where there's no pain, no hurts, no real life issues he has to deal with. Paul is very honest. He admits right there that I am suffering. The things that I'm going through are hard. There are difficulties in my life. I won't deny that. But he's also very honest. And so I love what Paul says when he says that he is honest about the real temptation that hard things can kind of steal life from us. Hard things can make it difficult for us. It can suck the life of us. Just the simple phrase, don't lose heart. Um, I used to play video games when I was young and cool. And you, you could, sometimes they'd measure your, your character's life by a heart, and that heart would kind of de- deteriorate as you got hit. And I always deteriorated quickly for me because I was terrible at video games. But you could just see the heart diminish. And that's, that's a metaphor for what really happens to us. Hurts and pain do really take the life out of us from time to time. Maybe a lot. And so Paul is honest about the real temptation that hard things can take life from us. But I also love another thing that he's honest about. We all know that. We all understand that. But I love his perspective that he has on the hard things in his life. And he's honest, I think, about the redeeming perspective that brought life to him in the midst of his hard things. Paul was honest to say, yes, there are some really hard things in my life, but he is just as honest to say that God is redeeming those hard things, and through the hard things, there's these other good things that God is doing and bringing and working out through my sufferings. So as we share this today, I don't want this to be just nice little words of advice from preacher. I really want this to come from a heart to a heart to understand, because that's why Paul writes it. Paul cares about these Ephesian Christians. He cares about their status and what they're going through. And so he understands that, boy, it can be easy for us to get discouraged when hard things come into our life in whatever form they may be, big and little. And I experienced this this week. I had a brother stop and ask me about something that was hard in my own life. And he stopped and he listened and, and he prayed for me. And that was encouraging. That was heart-filling for me. And that's what Paul is doing here for them. When he simply comes to them and says, hey, this is, uh, this is what's going on. I know there's this thing that I'm suffering in. And it hurts me and it's bothering you. It's, it's hurting you. And we'll see why in a moment. But um, I, I want you not to be discouraged because I'm not discouraged. I'm not allowing this to destroy me. In fact, this pain is, is becoming something that God is using for a lot of good in me and around me. And so that leads us then to our text in Ephesians chapter three, verses one through 13, where Paul, both again through his example and through the letter that he writes, shows us his perspective that helped him to see this simple phrase. This is kind of the gist of what I hope that we will see and learn here today. And I don't know if this is biblical language or not, but I think it is. I can go through anything if I'm convinced that God is in it. And I think the as we read through the verses that we're going to look at here today, I want you to keep that in your mind. Maybe jot that down on your, on your page even. And, and just keep that in mind that when you go through hard things, Paul lived from that perspective. That there's not a thing that will come my way that I cannot handle, that cannot be worked out for some level of good, that can do something in me, through me, around me, if I'm convinced that God is in it. And so Paul lived through a lot. And he lived out this truth beautifully, right? Just think of Paul's life. He was imprisoned um, unjustly, as we'll see in a moment. He went through times when he was hungry and in need. 
He went through painful times of being rejected and attacked by enemies, physically attacked oftentimes, stoned almost to death. He was abandoned by friends who were close to him and that he hoped that would come and be with him. The physical suffering, the wounds and the sickness, the emotional struggles that he went through uh, in caring because he cared. And when you care, it hurts, right? And so there's lots of things that he went through, but I think that motto, that thing that kind of drove him, there's not a thing that I'm going to go with, go through and be found in that I can't handle. I can't go through it. I can face it. It's okay because I know God is here through Christ with me. And so he was able to do all of these things. We've been singing an awesome song the last few months. Um, The song is called Another in the Fire. I love that song. I love the words of it. It says this, there was another in the fire standing next to me. There was another in the waters holding back the sea. And should I ever need reminding of how I've been set free, there is a cross that bears the burden where another died for me. There's another in the fire. And I think that's the attitude from which Paul lived his life, from which he faced the hard things that came his way, when he hurt, when things were confusing, when things when pressure mounted, when things disappointed him, he always knew there was someone walking with him through those things, and that person was Christ. And that's the perspective that Paul is trying to point the Ephesians back to as they're thinking about the suffering that he is facing and the things that he's going through. And he just wants to remind them that Christ's people do not walk through hard things alone. And so let's start back in chapter three, verse one, and look at what he writes there. Let's go back to the beginning of that chapter where he writes this reason, and we're gonna kind of camp out on this verse for just a second here, although it doesn't say a whole lot, but I wanted to get some context from it. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and then note the little dash there, because the dash is important, okay? And so, um, because there's a break in his thinking, okay? But let's think what he's talking about. For this reason, what's he been talking about? If you go back into chapter two, of just summarizing, won't preach the sermon again, but just summarizing what he's been saying there, back in chapter two, verses 11 through 22, Paul has outlined the unprecedented blessings that God has now poured out onto the Gentiles, which is a big deal because they never were included in all of God's promises and, and the hope that, that Israel had. For 2,000 years from Abraham to the time of Christ, God's blessings were mostly restricted to the Jews and the Gentiles were included from the nation of Israel, they were strangers to God's covenant of promises, and thus they had no hope and were without God in the world. Pretty despairing place to be. But then he comes in verse 13 of chapter 2 and he says these beautiful words, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And Paul shows how through the gospel, Christ has now reconciled Jews and Gentiles to one another And he has reconciled both groups in one body, which is the body of Christ, his church. And now we all come to God through the cross. We come to God on one path, in one way. And so he says, for this reason, for all the things I've just said about what God is doing to bring the two into one, and then comes the dash. He begins to reflect upon his role in that because when Paul was confronted on the road to Damascus, God gave him a mission. He says, I want you to go to Damascus and you're gonna meet a man there. He's gonna tell you everything that I want you to do. 
And from that point on, Ananias said, you know what, Paul, God has chosen you to be his missionary to the Gentiles. Lots of people are going to talk to the Jews, but you're going to take this gospel to places it's never been before. You're going to the Gentiles. And so when Paul reflects upon his suffering, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, again, a prisoner is never a fun thing to be, for the sake of you Gentiles. That little phrase is important because that kind of sparks a thought in his mind. Now, if you read through all of chapter three, you'll notice there's a dash at the end of verse one, and then there's this kind of parenthetical thought that goes from verse two down through verse 13. And then if you put verse 14 up there for me, um, it says this, he comes back at verse 14, for this reason I kneel before the Father. And so that he kind of picks up his thought down in verse 14. So as you read this chapter, it kind of seems like he's just wandering all over the place. But really he has verse one, and then he has this thought as he thinks about um, his ministry to the Gentiles and all that it's cost him, the difficult place it's put him in, the hard things that have come because of it. And then he kind of gives his parenthetical thought to encourage them, lift them up, don't, be, don't lose heart because it's hard for me. And then in verse 14, he picks up his thought again, and away he goes with the prayer that I think he originally began to pray in verse 1. And so he, he prays this in verse 16 and 17. His prayer is simply going to be, as we'll see next week, I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, being rooted and established in love. But again, go back to that verse 1 again. But before he gets to his prayer, something diverts Paul's attention. And he says that, Paul, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now think about that. Why was Paul a prisoner? Now, we often talk about Paul being a prisoner, but I don't know that we've actually stopped and paused and said, well, why is Paul a prisoner? I think the reason that he's a prisoner is because it wasn't because he, he was a bad guy. He wasn't doing illegal things, at least most, by most people's definition of things. If preaching the gospel was illegal, if preaching the gospel to Gentiles was illegal, then yes, he was guilty of that because that's exactly why he ended up in prison. And so why does he reflect on that? Why does he kind of stop there? Perhaps, somebody, one writer said, perhaps as he's writing his letter, he hears his, his prisoner's chains, chains clank, and, and the sound of that reminds him, oh, by the way, in spite of all that I've said about how great Christ is, I, Paul, I'm in his prisoner. I'm the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Or perhaps he's writing to the Ephesians and says, hey, I know everywhere I go, I planned a church and there's this group of Jewish folks, they called them the Judaizers, who would always follow Paul everywhere he went and Paul would start a church saying, the Jews and the Gentiles are welcome to come to, to God through Christ, by grace, through faith. And yet the Judaizers would always follow in and say, nope, that's not the way this works. If you Gentiles are gonna really be right with God, then you have to become Jews first. You have to keep our laws, you have to be circumcised, you have to do all these Jewish things, and then you're right with God because it always goes back with us. And Paul uh, always was having to fight those struggles. And so maybe he, he remembers them. And so maybe one of the arguments the Judaizers would use against Paul, well, if he's really God's man, if he's really God's apostle, then why is he in jail? Right? Surely God, if he had a great prophet, he wouldn't be stuck in jail somewhere. And so Paul oftentimes writes about his imprisonment to reflect upon the purpose of that and the point of that. And so maybe that's the case. But maybe there's another thing that I learned a couple weeks ago that uh, I'd read it before but not paid attention to it, that maybe the reason that Paul stops to talk to the Ephesians about why would they lose heart because Paul's in prison was maybe because there's a personal connection between why Paul's in prison and the Ephesian church, and there is. 
If you were to go to Acts chapter 20 and 21 and 22, there's a, there's a thing that's going on, that there's this famine in Jerusalem and in Israel. And so Paul is off in, in Asia and Turkey and all those places, modern day Turkey and all those places, and he's planting churches and, and he hears the, the news that the Christians in Jerusalem and other places are struggling because of this famine. And so he organizes an offering from all the churches in Europe and Asia Minor, and he says, hey, we're going to collect this offering, and we're going to take it to Jerusalem to show brotherhood and to show, hey, we Gentiles are with you Jews, and, and just kind of building church unity by helping each other meet needs of each other. And so Paul does that, but he doesn't just take the offering by himself. With many of the churches that he collected money from, he takes a representative from that church for accountability, and they go back to Jerusalem. And so Paul arrives back in Jerusalem, and while he's there, he's with these Gentiles, with these Greeks, and um, people see them together. In Acts chapter 21, um, it says this, that Paul has gone into the prison. And if you remember last week, Tyler talked about the, the temple curtains, that if you were um, a priest, you could go farther into the temple. If you were a, a Jewish woman, you could go this, this far. If you were a Gentile, you were, you were left on the outside with a big sign saying, if you cross this line, it's your fault if we kill you, right? Because you, you can read the signs, don't cross this, Gentiles. And so the Jews took that very seriously. And this is how Paul ends up getting arrested originally in Acts chapter 21, verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, the seven days of this, this um, ceremony that Paul was doing, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple and they stirred up the whole crowd and they seized him shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, here's the, here's the charge that originally got Paul arrested. Besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. And here's the verse that I'd not paid attention to before that I think makes the connection back to the book of Ephesians. Verse 29 says, They had previously seen Trophimus the who? The Ephesian. This young man who had come from Ephesus with Paul to Jerusalem, and they had seen him with Paul, and so they assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple where he should not have come before. And so I'm sure Trophimus, but now several years have passed, and Trophimus is back in Ephesus. And, and so why would the Ephesian church have an especially heavy burden because of Paul being in prison? Perhaps it's because there was this connection that they kind of take some responsibility. It's kind of like one of our guys Got Paul arrested, didn't do anything wrong, but he just, he, the, the implication was that this Ephesian was, was why Paul was arrested. And Paul ends up in a series of appeals and things that he gets shuffled around through the political system, and, and he's been a prisoner for a long time. Paul's imprisonment wasn't just a sad, uncommon thing or unknown thing to the Ephesians, it was personal to them. And if you've ever watched someone that you love go through something hard, you know the pain that you feel because of their struggle. And so the Ephesians not only were a church that Paul had planted and spent years at, but it's also a place that Paul's hardship was, was slightly connected to one of their own. So they're feeling the weight of this. They're feeling the struggle of, man, we know you're in prison, Paul. We hate that for you. We feel for you and we pray for your freedom and, and for God to do all kinds of good things through you and in you. And so Paul writes to encourage them, say, don't lose hearts. Don't become discouraged in this struggle and that leads us then, I think that's the longest introduction I've ever preached to a sermon, but the rest of it's short, okay? So just go with me. But I wanted to set the context of that so that when we talk about what Paul is going to say about his perspective on suffering, on his suffering, this is what Paul is doing to remind himself, you know, because there's another in the fire, because I'm not walking through this alone, these are the things 
that I'm seeing. These are the things I'm looking at. And I think he learns and speaks some beautiful things as he encourages them. Look, just like I'm going through some hard things, you're feeling it too. Let's look at this perspective on the hard things that we face and see if we might, it, it doesn't take the pain away. It doesn't make us not hurt. It doesn't make us not cry. It doesn't mean we're not sad. It doesn't mean we're not struggling but there's this perspective on it that makes it meaningful in a way that without this perspective, it's not. And so there are a few things as we read to this passage, as we finish here, I just want to remind you of some things that Paul had on his perspective on his sufferings. Number one is this. Paul's perspective was that my suffering can bring good to others. Paul comforts himself. He keeps going through his suffering because he realizes that through his suffering, he can bring good. He can bring God. He can bring grace. He can bring the gospel to other people. And, and that's what, exactly what he says. If you begin in verse 2 uh, down through verse 6, listen to what he writes. He says, surely you have heard about the administration or the steward of God's grace that was given to me for you. So there's that first indication. You know what Paul says? You know what? All this stuff I'm going through, this isn't about me. I'm a steward of something that God has given to me for you. It, it, it's for your good that I've been given this gift and this stewardship. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. Now let's pause there. The word mystery shows up four or five times in this passage. So I think it's important to define it before we get to the, the further part. And I love what Rick actually in, in, a lesson he did many years ago, he defined the word mystery for us, okay? We all like a good mystery, but when the New Testament uses the word mystery, this is what it's talking about. A mystery is a sacred secret that for generations long ago was hidden only in the mind of God, but now it has been revealed to those in Christ Jesus. All right, so think about that phrase again. It's a sacred secret that for generations long ago, so God made a promise way back in the Old Testament that through Abraham, all the nations on earth will be blessed through his family. And so far, you keep reading the Old Testament, what, who's, who gets blessed? It's all the Israelites, the Jewish people, they get all the promises, all the covenants, all the blessings, and the Gentiles seem to be left out. And so the secret was, well, then how is God gonna bring this together? And then Jesus shows up, and the cross happens, and a resurrection happens, and Christ is seated, and, and the church begins to grow, and it, it, it's given to both, and, and they all become one in Christ. And so this mystery that Paul is talking about is not something that we can't know. He's actually going to define exactly what he's talking about. But whenever you see the word mystery, just think about that. Something that's been hidden in God's mind for a long time in the past, but now is revealed to us in Christ and through Christ. And so it goes on to say this, verses 4 and 5. In reading this, in reading what I'm writing then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which is not made known to people in other generations. Again, remember our definition, things hidden in the past, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and the prophets, what God is doing now through Christ and his followers. And verse six defines what mystery is in this context. This mystery is that through the gospel, the gospel that Paul had been given a stewardship over, that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise of Christ. Now, we could unpack that in a lot of different ways, but I simply want us to think from the topic of looking at how did Paul continue to be strong? How did he continue to keep going when things were really hard for him? I think one of the things that motivated Paul was he realized that he was simply a steward of a life and a gift and of the gospel and of grace to give for the benefit of other people. And so if you're going through like Paul was, if you're in a Roman prison cell and you can't go out there and plant churches like you really feel called to and want to do, 
What do you do in your prison cell if you realize my life is here for the benefit of other people? Well, you just begin to talk to people that are available to you. And that's exactly what he did. He began to talk to prison guards and, and the gospel began to spread through Roman, Roman prisons and other places. And, and he lived from the perspective of, yes, this is hard, but there's someone else with me through this struggle. And because of that, I'm gonna continue to live out this mission, this, this gospel through my pain, but it's not about me because pain oftentimes can make us become very inner focused and we just see ourselves and we stop seeing others. And, and Paul lives that out through his example. His life wasn't easy, didn't get easier because he lived with this motto, but through it all, he realized, you know what? Through the struggle, maybe I'm here for somebody else. Maybe through my treatments or through my disease, I'm gonna meet people that I can pass grace along to and help them. Or through my hurts or through my, my difficult time, I can help somebody else with that because it's never just for us. And Paul lived from that, that place. Second thing I want you to see is this, that my sufferings can bring growth into my life. Paul, in what he goes on to write in verse seven, understood that not only was, was the gospel doing things that he could help other people with, but Paul was always learning. He was always growing. And listen to his words in verse seven. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. So what's Paul saying is that, boy, I didn't earn any of this. I don't deserve any of this. All this was just given as a gift to me and I am learning it and I am stewarding it and I'm following and I'm, I'm humble. Uh, he goes on in verses eight and nine to say this, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. I don't know how many, how many ways he could say I'm, I'm the least, right? I'm on the lowest of the totem pole because of my past, because of all the things I did against Christ. Um, I, am the least, I am the least of all, I'm less than the least. That's not, that's not even a, a thing, right? I'm less than the least, right? It's, it's a hyperbole to prove a point. I'm at the bottom of the rung, or ladder, of all the Lord's people. The grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. And so as you read that, you just find humility. You find a person who's just learning and stewarding and following and just saying, God, whatever you have for me today, send me, I'm here, grow in me. And so you find that Paul is suffering, but he's still ministering and he's maturing and he's growing and he's ministering in this grace and he's trusting in God's power to help him when he's weak. And, and you find all these phrases that he recognizes his sinfulness and his need for God. And you just find this growing heart, this growing mentality in him. And so... I love what, um, I forget who even said it. I should have wrote it down. I apologize to them. Um, but they said this, that it's better to redeem your suffering than to become bitter and waste the suffering that you go through. And I love that statement. And again, not at a pithy, easy level, but just at a deep heart, soul level. When we go through really hard things, I can either be bitter and be ruined by it, or I can allow, with God's help, God, redeem something of this. Redeem this pain, redeem this struggle, redeem this hardship. May something good and glorifying happen to others through my life or in me or for you. Please redeem this. Make this suffering and this hurting meaningful. Again, it didn't take Paul's suffering away, but Paul was always looking to say, how can I grow and what can God do in me to make this meaningful? And number three is the last thing, is my suffering can bring glory to God. He says this in verse 10. My intent was now 
that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. In other words, not only all the heavens and earth would know God, but even the angels in heaven would know that the rulers and authorities in heaven, the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, he's saying, you know what? What's happening here, what God is doing through his people, through the church and bringing Jew and Gentile together and honoring Christ is all about revealing not just to the world what God's up to, but even the angels, they're not infinite. They didn't know everything and they're learning and they're watching and, and they're studying this and he's showing it to God's angels and demonic angels and everybody's seeing the power of what God is doing through Christ as they watch this plan unfold. All glorifying God, showing his wisdom, showing how great and how awesome and in control he is. And then he finishes with this beautiful expression, verse 12, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I don't know about you, but when you hurt, um, it can be easy to, to question God, to doubt God, but I love that verse. Here's a man who's in prison, who's been beaten, who's gone through so many hard things, and yet his approach to his faith in God is that in Christ and through faith in Christ, I can approach God with freedom and with confidence. I don't have to hold back. I don't have to pretend to be right. I just have to come to him and I can ask whatever and I can talk to him about whatever and that God is near. And so our prayers are important in that. And then he finishes, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. And so I just want us to finish today by saying a prayer. A prayer for people that are walking through hard things. Because as you walk through this passage, we can just allow this to be just more, more positive thinking and all those kind of things. And I don't want that to be this because I think pain is real. Suffering is real. Hard things are very, very difficult. And Paul would never deny any of that. But Paul had a perspective that he brought because of his faith in Christ. A perspective that said, you know what? God can use this situation to encourage, to build up somebody else. And, and I love stories of people when they come and say, you know what, I was at my cancer treatment and, and I got to talk to the neighbor who was really discouraged. And that's the kind of thing that when you're going through things, you gain a credibility, you gain, gain a listenability, if that's a word, that people will listen to you because they, they feel for you and they see that you're really feeling this and you're struggling. So there's this good that God can do through you. There's this good that God can do in you. Boy, we learn to trust in God more when we hurt. And I hate that. I wish it was just, God. we learned to trust God in easy ways. But when does God come most close? When do you believe God to be in your faith and God goes deeper? It's when you walk through hard things and you find him to be good and true and caring and compassionate and good to meet you where you are. And ultimately, Paul came with the perspective that my suffering can be glory to God. That through my hurting life, somehow God could be glorified and honored that people would think good of God because of the way that Paul suffered. And so I just want us to finish in a prayer. I don't know where that lands. I know that our hurting and our suffering are oftentimes difficult and, and they create all kinds of mixed emotions in us. But I would just ask for you to pray with me if you would in this moment over this text.